This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Two years ago, as COVID lockdowns were spreading, few people understood how the pandemic would upend their lives and the global economy. Now our eyes are open to the realities we long ignored. The permanent structures that we took for granted, the stability, the security, the health security, all of those things are much more tentative and fragile than we, than we believed was possible a couple of years ago. When we are faced with such gigantic looming threats as global pandemics and climate catastrophe, where do we look for answers? I look at the survival of many communities that have been marginalized and oppressed, often intergenerationally, when the future looked incredibly grim, right? But there's practices of continuance and pulling together to have that kind of robust form of hope to improve the conditions for one's own well-being. Since March of 2020, people around the world have been dealing with a pandemic more severe than most people knew was possible. At first, many were willing to follow guidelines, social distance, and do what was asked to keep themselves and others safe. Two years in, everyone feels exhausted by both the effort and the general anxiety of living with COVID. Simultaneously, we face the even greater existential threat of climate disruption. For those fighting the effects of this slower-moving catastrophe, fatigue is a familiar feeling. Given that COVID and climate change are both global crises with uneven impacts, what can we learn from how we deal with these evil twins? Britt Ray is a human and planetary health fellow at Stanford University and author of Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. David Wallace-Wells is editor-at-large for New York Magazine and author of The Uninhabitable Earth, a book about the terrifying impacts of burning fossil fuels. We recorded this conversation prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which created yet another humanitarian crisis that makes even people far from the war zone feel anxious and vulnerable. And if we're feeling anxious and vulnerable, we can only imagine the grief and suffering on the ground in Eastern Europe. David Wallace-Wells worried about the novel coronavirus before it had reached mainstream consciousness. I asked him when it dawned on him that the virus was going to be a much bigger problem than many anticipated. I think technically it might have been in early January. It was just, it was over the holidays, so it's a little hard to untangle which year it was. But um, really, as soon as there were um, any warnings being issued um, out of China that the rest of the world was seeing, um, they started to seem quite concerning to me. I'm not sure that I knew or felt or intuited, even in a kind of panicky way, that it was going to be you know, anything like the experience we've had global, you know, multi-year with more than 10 million people um, dying globally or anything like that. I probably thought it was going to be something like um, SARS or MERS. Um, so it was going to be a, a major story in, in one part of the world, which was not the part of the world that I was living in. Um, but it did feel like still a major event. And over the course of January, as we sort of learned more about what was happening in China, it started to get more concerning still than that and started to seem much more like a disease that was not going to be containable in one region of the world. And I had an especially um, sort of eye-opening experience, like I think a lot of people did, just reading a very a particular Twitter thread by a scientist named Eric Feigl Ding, who's at Harvard, and his critics will say uh, he's, a, he's a nutritional epidemiologist, not an infectious disease epidemiologist, which is true. And he wrote a, um, a long Twitter thread that was really full-on freak out, panic, um, looking at some of the early data coming out of China. And in it, he got a couple of data points wrong. He did some compare, made some 
um, inaccurate comparisons. But his general, the general spirit of that thread was like, this is likely to be the most damaging, destructive, deadly pandemic that we've seen in generations, probably since the Spanish flu of 1918. And anybody who's treating it as um, a smaller threat than that has got their head in the sands. And this was a really interesting sort of moment for me and period for me, because the immediate response to his very viral Twitter thread was to have a lot of people who had more expertise in the area than he had um, sort of shouting him down and saying, uh, you've gotten this wrong, you've gotten this wrong, you've gotten this wrong, rather than looking at the holistic picture of the disease that he was presenting and saying, okay, there are a couple points in here we might have presented a little differently, but basically the big picture is right. This is really scary. It's unlike anything we've seen in a very long time. And unless there's unbelievably dramatic action globally to contain this very quickly, likely its impact is going to be beyond anything that anyone alive today has ever experienced before. And that prediction, that sort of alarmist prophecy came true. And the, you know, the, the sort of reassuring, dismissive um, commentary from his colleagues, many of whom had more expertise than he did, those did not come to pass. Like their message um, was not validated by what followed. Um, and over the course of the last couple of years, um, you know, he's, he's a, an interesting figure. He continues to be quite an alarmist. Um, at almost every point of the pandemic, he's saying things are going to be really bad. And he's sort of misspoken or misestimated or, you know, miscalibrated those warnings on a, at a few points. But when you think of um, overall, um, you know, trying to look especially back at that set of warnings that he issued right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, it strikes me that we were, as a whole, um, as we are often on climate, um, far too complacent, far too trusting that our um, scientific expertise and technological wisdom will allow us to get out of the challenges that we see clearly um, in ways that don't even allow us to really see them all that clearly to begin with. We're so um, invested in narratives of triumph and victory that we um, we can't even really see a, a true threat um, when it's staring us right in the face, which I think is, is what happened um, in early 2020 when, you know, if you look at especially some countries in Asia, there were measures that were taken that, that could have um, contained it. But globally, um, especially all across the West, Europe and, and the Americas, we just weren't willing to um, to take any of those measures, certainly preemptively, which is probably what, what would have been necessary. Britt, when, when COVID hit, you were working in a house in a remote area with two other writers. You entered the house, not shaking hands, and during your time together, the world changed. How did the reality of COVID gradually set in? Yes, I was at a writing residency, locked away from the world in order to crunch out some pages on this book about the emotional and psychological impacts of the climate crisis. And while on the very day that we entered the house together, it was the first time that I had ever practiced this new custom of not shaking hands physically with someone because we were aware that there was something in the air you should be a little bit concerned about. But also, it was really an act of politeness that people hadn't ingrained into a new sense of biosecurity for their way of moving through the world. And little by little, you know, day after day, we were meant to be there for some weeks, but taking in the headlines as they rolled in through our devices in the morning and discussing, oh, okay, this is, this seems to be, um, you know, increasingly urgent, but we still didn't know how to make sense of it. You'll remember that time was highly disorienting. And it wasn't until a day came when one of the other writers who was from Jordan started panicking and we needed to have an all out mission to 
to help her find a way to get a flight home so that she could ensure that she wouldn't be separated from her child with what would surely be mass pandemonium with planes being grounded or flying in multiple strange directions that wouldn't get you to your route, et cetera. Um, and, and in witnessing her flurry of lifestyle change to end her time there at the residency, try to get home. And then, you know, the next thing we know, the WHO has called it a pandemic and we're all leaving the residency and stopping it early and, you know, not completing our program, et cetera. And it just felt like in that home, it was my incubator space for watching the world kind of turn inside out into this new state. And um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it's quite a special highlight in the way that I, I think about it. And, and then it was just very clear to me um, while I was there working on this book about climate crisis and its emotional impacts and how it messes with our minds. Maybe I needed to consider what going through that process inside of a pandemic would mean too. And of course, not knowing how long this would last. Um, it is now something that we have to interweave together. Right. And, and David, you've written about, you know, cognitive biases that prevented people from understanding how serious coronavirus could become. We couldn't imagine the possible disruption to the global economy. You said earlier we're attached to these narratives of of triumph. We clung to what we knew to be true rather than the cognitive pain of reconceptualizing our world. Say more about that, how we're in this term hyper object is being thrown around these days, things that are just so big we can't grok them. Well, I think, you know, um, all of us on this, <laughs> on this, in this conversation have lived lives of real privilege. And I don't mean that in a narrow sense. I mean that, um, we are, we are relatively healthy when we are sick, we have access to, um, good, you know, medical care, even if many of those around us lack health insurance, um, the, you know, our diets are, are, are strong, you know, all of these ways in which we've lived lives, um, under a meta narrative of triumph over nature and independence of nature. And, I think that's the most powerful um, thing that has been shaken for me um, with COVID, even as it shook me with climate, which is to say, I've lived my life feeling like the forces of the natural world did not pertain to me. And in both of these cases, um, we're learning now sort of, as Britt points out, somewhat simultaneously in ways that are interwoven and make this each making the solution to the other a little more challenging. Um, we're learning that, in fact, we are very vulnerable, um, that we are, as individuals, but certainly at the level of society, the permanent structures that we took for granted, the stability, the security, the health security, um, all of those things are much more tentative and fragile than we, than we believed um, was possible a couple of years ago. I think there are ways in which that may um, help educate us in our fight against climate. But I worry about some of the the opposite effects, too, that we might further cocoon ourselves once we feel like the pandemic is behind us and not really learn many of the lessons that um, the last couple of years should teach us if we if we looked at it with with open eyes. Right. And, and Britt, I mentioned, you know, hyper object. You know, what is a hyper object and how do these things kind of challenge our ability to uh, to process them and respond to them? Mm -hmm. So a philosopher named Timothy Morton has coined this term hyper object to describe phenomena that actually extend beyond the normal category of what it means to be a thing because they are so vast and all-encompassing. It's really difficult to see where they start or stop. And when we can't see the boundaries of something because it's so overwhelming and vast, like the climate crisis, it can be difficult for us to identify a place for us to enter and intervene and make a change. And so the hyper object becomes 
of, of the climate crisis, I mean, is something that we see when it is the plastic straw in our glass <laughs> or our other recycling habits at home or the lack of political action from our leaders or, you know, the ways that we vote, um, our concerns about future generations, our uh, perhaps experiencing of climate grief in the present moment. And so all of that is part and parcel of how this crisis touches everything. And of course, the pandemic also touches similarly many aspects of our lives, reorienting how we go through our days, how we relate to each other, what we think about the future, um, how we're working and and so on and so forth. So hyper objects are really uh, the kind of fabric of our world at the moment in, in many ways, and we're having to figure out how we can cope with them. One of the interesting features of that to me is the way that we narrativize without having a full comprehensive picture. So we, we tell ourselves stories about these experiences that we're having, which are informed by parts of the hyper object, which we can see and measure, but don't necessarily reflect the whole system as it's, um, as it's sort of pulling into view. I think that's been the case with both of these crises, with the climate crisis and with COVID-19, that many of the things that we often tell ourselves either to comfort ourselves or to rile ourselves up or whatever the case may be, um, they may be helpful and strategic in sort of local ways, but they're also not precisely accurate as um, illustrations of, of the whole system because it's so hard for us to really take in the whole system at once. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about living with COVID and climate fatigue. If you missed a previous episode or want to hear more of Climate One's empowering conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Coming up, how do we deal with uncertainty in the face of global threats? I'm really uncomfortable with uncertainty. I got really angry when those models seemed so wrong because I really wanted to know like what the next three weeks of the pandemic are going to be like. And I think as a as a species, as a culture, as a civilization, as a country, we've gotten so addicted to a sense of certainty and confidence in our technocratic expertise that any sense that those projections are just projections um, is really disorienting and uncomfortable. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow Ted Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about COVID and climate fatigue with authors Britt Ray and David Wallace-Wells. A lot of COVID and climate reporting is about the shape of curves projecting future problems. I asked David Wallace-Wells, known to be a data-driven person, what comparisons and contrasts he sees between COVID and climate data. The thing that's been really striking to me following and covering the pandemic is um, how how bad the models were. <laughs> and I, I remember very vividly there was a moment in the in the winter surge in twenty early twenty twenty one when I was looking at the CDC website and they aggregate their what they consider the twenty eight best forecasts of the next month or so of the pandemic twenty eight different models and you're you know they also show if you aggregate them what they're 
whether aggregate projections are, but you can disaggregate them and look at them individually. And um, in the in the midst of that surge, which was you know the worst experience that the U.S. and much of the rest of the world had of the of COVID to that point, um, and was not right at the start of the pandemic, it was almost a year in, so we should have learned quite a bit about the dynamics of spread. Um, There are 28 models, and the actual events in the real world, two weeks after those projections were made, fell outside of the 95% confidence interval of 26 of the 28 models, which means only two of the models that the CDC aggregated as saying the absolute best projections of the next few weeks even included the outcome as it eventually happened in the world. And the two that did include them included them at the only at the fringes of their um, of their range of, of possibility, which means basically what happened in the world was considered just about impossible, and in 26 of 28 cases, totally impossible um, by what were considered the best models that the CDC put forward. And we've seen this sort of time and time and time again throughout the pandemic, where every time a wave or a surge begins, we essentially see very simplistic um, projections of it's basically going to spread through the whole population, then it's going to die. And it's just has not been the case in any of these ways. And I don't mean to say that they've been uniformly bleaker. Um, in many cases, you know, they've been they failed to predict upticks too. They've just been very bad guides to um, the medium term future. Does that say that since the COVID models were so repeatedly wrong, does that make you worry that it's making people distrust climate models? Because that's often hitting on models is often a critique, you know, from skeptics, deniers on the right. Honestly, I think that not all that many Americans, not all that many people around the globe were, are, have been really paying attention to how faulty these models were. I think that they've just been following the curves in the newspaper on a, in a day-to-day or week-to-week way and saying, okay, things are now getting better. Okay, oh, I think, okay now things are getting worse. Um, so it it's, it's feels a little bit more of a, of a niche concern. Um, but I think we had a, a sort of a similar, you know, not nearly as dramatic, but a similar event or series of events happened around the Pacific heat dome um, last summer when a lot of climate modelers were saying, wow, this is really far outside of our range of expectation. And now, of course, when we're talking about models that project tons of weather outcomes, as many climate models do, there are going to be some crazily extreme outcomes. That's not in and of itself so astonishing. But if we are having to approach those models with even more uncertainty than we came to them with a year or so ago and worry even more about um, extreme outcomes, that's quite scary. I'm somebody who's navigated my own climate anxiety in part by relying on these models and saying, okay, we know we could get to some really bad places, but at least we have a sense of what those bad places look like because these models tell us what they will look like. The more that we start to think, actually, our experience of the future is going to be defined much more by uncertainty than by apocalypse. That may in certain ways be comforting, but in other ways, it's more disorienting because we don't know how to plan. We don't know how to calibrate our own emotional expectations. We just find ourselves flying blind. And if my experience of, personally, my experience of the pandemic is any guide or illustration, I'm really uncomfortable with uncertainty. I got really angry when those models seemed so wrong because I really wanted to know like what the next three weeks of the pandemic are going to be like. And I think as a, as a species, as a culture, as a civilization, as a country, we've gotten so addicted to a sense of certainty um, and confidence in our technocratic expertise, um, especially those of us sort of in the coastal liberal elite or whatever that any sense that those projections are just projections um, is really, as I say, disorienting and and uncomfortable. And I think that that's likely to be the state of our climate future um, very quickly, that, you know, I have a lot of confidence in the climate models, but that doesn't mean that everything that happens is going to be predicted in a neat way. In fact, we're going to be surprised again and again and again. That's just what it means to live with the amount of uncertainty that are in all of those models.
Britt, let's bring you in there on uncertainty. What I heard David say is that we, there's what, some ways uncertainty can be worse than known bad futures. I find that fascinating. And it makes sense because it gives us an element of control, which our minds crave so deeply, right? We have to do all kinds of mental gymnastics to be able to feel comfortable in any amount of uncertainty. And there are tools that we can apply to help ourselves deal with that, to help our nervous systems relax with that awareness of our vulnerability. But it takes work and it's not automatic to a lot of us. It's kind of anti-intuitive. So yeah, being able to grip onto the handlebars of models that at least outline what we can expect because knowledge is power and therefore we can resource ourselves, make some plans, get together with our people and figure out what that scary future is that's coming at us and how we're going to build up some resilience and preparation for it. You know, that that is helpful. At the same time, for me, I find that there's a huge mouth of possibility that comes with uncertainty because it opens up space for potentials, for emergence, you know, and I think that humans are, as David is saying, very terrible at predicting the future, even sometimes with the best tools and measurements and technologies, right? And uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but I can certainly think back to tons of times in my life when I've said something about the future that was just so wrong. (laughs) And in that sense, it's freeing to understand that many things will come that are currently inconceivable to us, which of course includes a panoply of grim details that we'd rather not be part of our reality, but can also include much more regenerative and positive aspects of being human at this time as well. So um, I look at the survival of many communities that have been marginalized and oppressed, often intergenerationally, when the future looked incredibly grim, right? But there's uh, practices of continuance and pulling together to have that kind of robust form of hope to improve the conditions for one's own well-being, whether we're talking about, you know, a variety of indigenous communities or the Black community in the U.S. and other countries and what has happened in terms of fighting for rights and cultivating joy amidst difficulty and producing better outcomes. And I think that that applies to all of us in in the climate crisis too, which is where that kind of uncertainty and not giving up just because we don't know exactly what the future looks like is really is really a powerful place to draw, you know, the kind of strength that we need from. And and some of that anxiety, you know, we've talked about alarmism. David, your book clearly uh, rang an alarm and generated a lot of attention. Your initial article in 2017 created a lot of debate about, is it too dark? You know, will that depress people and paralyze them? Uh, You said also that we, in some ways, overreacted to COVID. So how do you see alarmism now compared to when, four or five years ago? Well, it's hard for me sometimes to separate my own like psychological journey on this question from um, the way that the the world has evolved um, in parallel. I would say first of all that I have a somewhat less alarmist view of the science of climate change than I did a few years ago. I think that some of the worst case scenarios now seem, if not impossible, then considerably less likely than they did um, when I wrote the article in 2017 and, and the book, which came out in early 2019. Now, I think the where we're headed and, and even our best case scenarios involve a lot of climate suffering. And so we shouldn't tell ourselves that this is a happy story exactly, but it is a relatively happy story if some of the truly most unimaginable horrors are looking less likely. Um, I also think that that is in part, importantly, in part a result of activism and political awakening that came out of fear. 
you know, the sort of global political movement that emerged in the aftermath of the UN's 1.5 degree report, which came out in 2018. So I'm talking about Greta Thunberg, but also all the other climate strikers all around the world, talking about sunrise in the US, Extinction Rebellion in the UK, um, and all of the sort of shockwaves and reverberations that all of those movements created outside of narrowly activist communities, but up through to prime ministers and presidents and politic, you know, CEOs and, and um, other C-suite executives. All of that has, I think, really the result of a growing sense of urgent climate anxiety that was much less present and much less um, widely held than, say, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago than it is today. Now we're in a place where the climate impacts are really arriving. We're seeing them in real time, almost no matter where you live in the world, whereas five or 10 years ago, um, it was only in sort of the global south, the equatorial bands of the planet, where you could really see those impacts clearly. Now, almost no matter where you live, they're, they're very they're very clear, very obvious. We're also living in a moment where our politicians are, at the rhetorical level, paying lip service to this crisis. I think they're not doing nearly enough about it. But we're all sort of, we've moved from a place in which we were thinking about how to think about a future threat to one in which it's now become a much more fundamental and quotidian feature of our everyday lives. And as a result, like the psychological dynamics there are a little bit different, which is to say, I don't know that the main, even if I think alarmism was really useful in sort of bringing about this political awakening, I think it probably is less essential in a, in a time when um, we're not, we're talking less about like rallying the troops and waking up the sleeping masses and more about um, putting practical measures into action to allow us to avoid um, some of these scarier outcomes. That's not to say at an individual level, if you're panicked that that's inappropriate, there are still many things that are worth being scared about. But I guess my own view, and as I say, it's it's a little hard for me to untangle where I am just personally from the global story, but my own view is that um, we're, we're not just, the main goal here is not just waking people up anymore. And as a result, the sort of raising the alarm with alarmist rhetoric is probably less important than it was a few years ago. I heard in there, you know, David is often seen as Mr. Darkness, you know, and I heard him say that it's not as bad as I thought several years ago. I want to do a happy dance and hang on to that because that kind of slid by. I'm like, hold on. That's good news that I want to let's, can we, you know, I think sometimes that often gets buried or hidden. I want to do a happy dance here. I mean, you know, the 1.5 degree report, which freaked everybody out was about the difference between 1.5 degrees and two degrees. And it will take an absolute unbelievable triple bank shot. Everything has to work. Every, we literally have to mobilize the world immediately for us to stay below two degrees. So all of the, like that, we were talking about these, these two, these two you're, markers. You're, you're throwing, you're throwing shade <laughs> on my happiness. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's really great that we don't need to worry about five degrees or worry about it as much, but we still have some things to worry about. Yeah. Yeah. I have really internalized David's writing, I think, first from the 2017 article in New York Mag that was the predecessor for the book, if I'm not mistaken, David. Yeah. And, you know, looking at those worst case scenarios, feeling it light a fire under me and, and bring me very close to huge amounts of existential fears was hugely activating. And the alarm worked for me. And I think, you know, I, I credit you, David, with um, being, uh, you know, a, a direction changer in my career among among several, but yours is very influential because of your writing. In that sense, I think <laughs> having having you know grappled with the messages that you've brought into the world, but then also hearing you say 
that it's not necessarily going to be all that bad considering what you have shared with us is really a bomb. It feels wonderful. There is a happy dance to be had, even though we're still talking about really grim outcomes. I mean, anything, yeah, what you're saying about getting to two, it's, it feels, you know, like that's not a realistic situation that we're facing. And so it's going to be really bad, of course. But yeah, to not be talking about five, I mean, hey, I'll take it. And uh, that's motivating. Britt, you say that you engage in, sh- quote, short-term suppression to survive. What does that mean? And how do you balance the desire to celebrate the good news, as we just had a little bit, relatively speaking? Understand two is not something to celebrate, two degrees of warming. But how do you engage in short-term suppression to survive? And, and you know, do you have a knob that you kind of turn on and off? So I mean short-term suppression to get through the day psychologically and emotionally because there is this defense that a lot of people employ called disavowal, which is largely unconscious. And it means having one eye open to the truth and the other eye closed simultaneously. So really knowing and fully feeling that the climate crisis is this huge you know, enduring civilizational threat scenario that we must figure out how to lessen the harms of as well as adapt to. And then simultaneously, we turn away from that and we hop on the next flight and we live out our lives according to our desires and we thwart our impulses towards making big actions and changes, right? And that's largely because unconscious defenses help to protect us from anxiety and pain. And and there is a lot of anxiety and pain and ambivalence that comes with facing up to the climate crisis and seeing the, you know, there's a taxing dilemma that many of us are in as our actions make it worse. But the short-term suppression is kind of like consciously putting on the disavowal. So not just being at the mercy of my defenses, but saying, okay, I'm allowed to not think about this for eight plus hours a day this week. Okay? Because I'm a human that has other things to experience in life too, not just the climate crisis. <laughs> and so being someone who pays attention to this, whether you're a scientist, an activist, a journalist, you know, uh, whatever it is or someone just living on the front lines day to day, it can be really important to to find ways to, you know, expand your cup, make it big enough to take in other things as well. And so short-term suppression, the immensity of the climate threat for me, has become a necessary tool from time to time and within measure to allow me to do that. But again, the difference is that it's not unconscious. You're kind of like putting the hat on for a little while and then you will step back into the arena. I've done that a little bit. We've had some beautiful sunny days in February and in the San Francisco Bay Area. And of you know, it's terrifying. It should be raining. We are in some of the worst drought in 1,200 years. And I've flipped that switch a little bit to say, okay, I'll enjoy this nice sunny February day, even though I know it's terrifying. Uh, I've allowed myself that. David, you say it's easier to live in a complacent quasi-climate denial world because we're disconnected from the sources of our suffering. What do you mean by that? And is there a problem with that? Before I get to that, let me just actually comment on something you said, which is about the what you described as the emotional dissonance between enjoying a sunny day in the midst of a, you know, sort of millennial drought. I actually think this is, you know, this is this illustrates another dynamic of um, our present moment, which is that if we had been talking about a future that was possible two or three decades from now, and we said there's a pretty good chance that the American West is going to be in the worst drought that we've had in 1,200 years. That would probably strike us as pretty dark. 
And I don't mean to say that there are no negative impacts of the current drought. Of course there are, and things will get worse, and the management of it will get harder. But it's also the case that you are living in San Francisco. Many people are living in California. Some people are dealing with water problems. The farms are, you know, there are problems. I don't mean to say there are none. But it is also the case that we are presently living through that drought, and that we are there, you know, we're, we're experiencing what seems on paper to be an unthinkable climate impact as something that's um, tough, but survivable. And I think that it's, you know, it's often hard to think about each of those features of the present tense at the same time, which is to say there are real costs, there are real burdens, there are re there's real suffering as a result, there's real strain on many different aspects of our society. It's felt disproportionately by those who can't respond properly. And that it's not, doesn't mean, you know, the end of Californian agriculture or um, the end of the world in the American West. We're somewhere in the middle. It's complicated to keep all of those facts arrayed around us to orient ourselves. But a true sort of accounting of the current state of climate, I think, has to involve both of those understandings, um, that things are really bad. They are literally unprecedented and that we are here today dealing with them, not extinguished by them. You know, I think to, to your point, I think like if we see someone getting murdered in the street, we're, we're outraged, we're horrified, we're like, we, we want to scream and run and get the, whatever we want to do, we want to intervene. The damage that's being done on climate is done offstage, out of view, in ways that are, you know, hidden from us um, quite systematically, um, not just because, you know, the oil is being pumped in a different part of the world and processed through market mechanisms that we see only like as we pay for the pay for the gas at the pump, but also because of um, denial and disinformation campaigns that have been enacted over a couple of generations that have made it much, much harder for any of us to see clearly the relationship that our consumption has to um, the plight of the planet. And I think that that's unfortunate in many ways. I think that one of the strongest problems with it, one of the biggest problems with it for me, is that it allows wealthy people in parts of the world like the ones that we live in to believe that the responsibility is shared equally globally or maybe even held primarily by people in other parts of the world when, in fact, since carbon accumulates in the atmosphere, um, historical emissions are still warming the planet. And as a result, everything that has made people like us pretty wealthy by global standards has also made the planet a much sicker place. And we are much more responsible for the state of things today than, say, somebody in China, um, somebody in India, and certainly someone in sub-Saharan Africa, whose responsibility is just a tiny, tiny fraction of the carbon impact that all three of us have had. And I'm sure compared to our you know, friends and colleagues, we're probably admirably small carbon footprints. But even compared to us, the, um, we, are, we, are, we are evil. This is Climate One. Coming up... What is the emotional toll of crises beyond our individual control? I went on that kind of journey, which was fueled from existential fears. And I also had to kind of step out of my middle class, white, privileged uh, understanding of hardship and connect with the rest of humanity, so to speak, and connect with history and understand how humans have been through so many crises. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the emotional toll of COVID and climate change with authors Britt Ray and David Wallace-Wells. Both the COVID and climate crises have causes and solutions at the systemic and individual levels, 
As individuals, we are often ill-equipped to process guilt related to our own complicity. It is often far more comforting to find villains to blame for the systemic problems than examine our own place in them. I asked Britt Ray how we process guilt in relation to these crises. We see this, of course. It's it's a huge part of a lot of activist rhetoric that we shouldn't be focusing on our individual minuscule impacts in relation to who's out there really spreading the damage. You know, the fossil fuel companies, the corrupt politicians, the lobbyists, etc., that are fueling the damage as we speak and have been for decades. And I really think that that is, of course, true on an intellectual level in many ways. But there's also perhaps a propulsion to turn away from looking within because it brings up shame, it brings up guilt, it brings up intolerable emotions that produce a bunch of defensive reactions and always have. And, you know, that's a huge part of why it's difficult for us to even discuss the climate crisis with many people in our lives because we see that complicity and it can bring up a lot of intolerable feelings that then get us into really difficult and complicated situations that we have to be delicate about how we we have compassion for other people's guilt as well as our own and say it's still worth interrogating and going from an either or to a both and approach here right that those collective damages from fossil fuel companies are of course extremely important to highlight and focus on and we can grow up enough to look at as david put it our own evilness right we're all complicit in this um, when we come from certain kinds of lifestyles and certain kinds of um, historical lineages that have produced the climate crisis as it is today, whether we're coming from some kind of, uh, you know, Western and uh, colonial history that has produced the industrialism and extraction that has, you know, obviously fueled the fire today. So um, I think we need to do a lot of that grappling work and um, put to rest this either or that, you know, individual versus collective, both are important and both are needed in order to find the kinds of repairs and, and healing to bring about some renewal here and a better future. I think another either or that we can we should try to get rid of is like the U.S. v. China on this, um, which is the the narrative of a lot of American climate leaders that you know the the I mean to some degree yes as Brett is saying like a lot of these comforting myths have some true elements to them and the course of the next several decades the climate future will be determined in some significant degree by by Chinese policy and to some. And, and um, Indian and Sub-Saharan African policy, but nevertheless, um, to treat you know those other countries as climate villains because their emissions are ticking slightly upward when, on a per capita basis, they're a fraction of what ours is today. As we try to present ourselves as climate leaders and climate champions, is you know, is pretty rich um, for Americans. And I think you know we have to we have to think about the, the solution set, um, the geopolitical challenges, and all of that not in um, narrowly binary ways, but in everybody has to get on board. That's the nature of the global challenge. That's what it means to, you know, get to zero. Um, nobody can be doing damage going forward. But we also have to understand that responsibilities are different, needs are different, and especially the U.S. is not at all in a position of global climate, leader, climate leadership, but really by any objective measure, um, the opposite, which means that we need to do a lot, lot more um, to, so we need to own up to it, but we also have to be much more aggressive in our in our policies and especially much more focused on um, how to cultivate and aid those elsewhere in the world, um, cultivate their transitions and aid them in their transitions rather than thinking 
narrowly nationalistic terms about whether climate action represents a national challenge or national setback. We have to think, take the needs of the globe um, as seriously as we take our own countries. David Wallace-Wells is editor-at-large of New York Magazine and author of The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Britt Ray is a human and planetary health fellow at Stanford University in the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Her new book is Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. Britt, in that book, you write that... Quote, a deep sense of grief and despair came crashing over me when I considered what it would mean to deliver a child into this world, end quote. And that feeling was in 2017, before COVID. Maybe that's because you had just read David's article. How did you get to a place where you decided to have a child? And what does that signify about your view of the future? Well, yes, those days were certainly mixed with articles like David's and then afternoon um, or evening conversations with my partner about wanting to get pregnant and figuring out how we could go about trying to do that, given what the science says and the lack of action that we're experiencing and largely driven by me. How we got there was many years of thinking about it, processing it. And for me, actually doing the research for my book, (laughs) going around, interviewing tons of different kinds of parents and non-parents and experts on the climate crisis and existential threat and people from communities who've long understood how unsafe the world can be and so on and so forth to really uh, try and interrogate my own thinking and see if I was, uh, you know, somehow off kilter on this topic or if this was really aligning in a way that that made sense and was reasonable um, for me to be so afraid. And at the time, there really wasn't that much out there on the topic. There was one organization I found called Conceivable Future, a U.S. women-led activist group holding house parties for people to come together and talk about how the climate crisis plays into their reproductive planning scenario. And that was cathartic to be able to find someone making the connection. Um, but it was really surreal to find that as I went on with my research about the emotional toll of the climate crisis and, and you know, how we can cope and reorient ourselves um, towards it, this topic took off. All of a sudden, there were articles and op-eds and statistics from surveys on how widespread reproductive anxiety due to the climate crisis had become. And so that, uh, of course, has been fascinating to me, but uh, as we are with humans, uh, as we are humans that go through um, emotional distress and then find ways of coping, my coping led me to come to a decision because you have to eventually on this matter, right? A binary, you do or you don't, you can't have half a child. Um, and from the the resources and new perspectives that I gathered from paying attention to this research, I eventually did decide to get pregnant and, and recently had a child. I have a five-month-old at home. And when I look back at it and wonder, you know, what were the main things here? Of course, a lot has already been said about the joy and purpose that children bring into people's lives. And I don't need to add more to that. That was hugely influential in my thinking. But alternatively, when I considered not having a child, um, which I tell you on thousands of occasions, I thought I would not. I realized that that was driven by a deeply fearful orientation towards the world. And I simply did not want to let that perspective take over my life. You know, this, this one time that I know of that I have to live and um, really owning up to the vulnerability 
that is the truth of the matter, that I am vulnerable, that we all are, and that I'm not in control of the situation, that I have to find a, a way of going forth with it anyway, helped me shift from the question of whether or not it's okay to have a child to what new forms of responsibility does it require to have a child? You know, what does it mean to to engage in supportive parenting in the climate crisis. Um, and that felt like the most genuine place for me to land on because ultimately the part of me that wanted to have a baby was bigger than the part of me that is terrified of the likely grim climate future that's coming at us. And um, as a result, here I am. And it doesn't mean that you don't toggle in and out of uh, distressing spaces uh, when you're thinking about your kids and what what's going to happen with the climate crisis, but there's so many of us out there um, connecting the dots and thinking about what's required to support the next generation, that that is ultimately really helpful as well when you're dealing with this kind of dilemma. David, how did reading Generation Dread affect you? Well, I think it it pushed me along this sort of evolution that I've been on, I was talking about earlier, um, away from the narrow need for raising the alarm and towards a much more nuanced and sophisticated um, picture of human psychology in a time of climate crisis. Um, I think we we need to, it's another way in which we need to abandon binaries and think much more holistically and in much more nuanced ways about um, how we will all be living here. Um, you know, and I think the book is a, a sort of marvelous um meditation and exploration of many of the divergent, sometimes contradictory, sometimes paradoxical, but always human ways in which we navigate um, many of these dynamics and can navigate them a little more productively and healthily if we do so, um, you know, conscientiously at the same time. In addition for everything that is scary and, and difficult about staring straight at this future, it is also moving and purpose-giving and meaning-giving in a way that um, can be can be quite positive. And, you know, some, t- some of us have, have lived in bubbles of privilege that um, where we haven't had to think existentially all that often or have been taught not to. And of course, that, that is true. That is a result of privilege. But it's also the case that if we were not thinking in those terms before, we were, we were deprived of some features of necessary human living. And, you know, we are a fragile species on a fragile planet. And that was true 30 years ago. It was true 70 years ago. It was true no matter how rich we were, no matter how cloistered we were. And I don't want to minimize the very real um, human costs of, of dramatic climate change. It's quite scary. But in a certain way, it also liberates some of these um, um, concerns and feelings that we have in cultures like ours, you know, been trained to suppress for a very long time. Someone uh, said to me once, cultures that put death at the center of their culture are much more resilient. Our culture, you know, puts death aside and we try to ignore it. And these are often indigenous cultures that often put death and, and the acceptance and reverence and ritual around death, that they are much more, have been much more resilient to the types of existential shocks and threats that we're now facing for the first time. They are not new for indigenous people and many people of color. Generation Dread is a, is a beautiful book. And yeah, we're in this together. And then what I took from it, you know, Britt was the ending on kind of relationships and you ended on on community. And you also write that looking into the dark depths of a new earth can unleash, quote, boundless stream of love, connection, and meaning that will always be at your back fueling what you do. Say more about that. 
Firstly, thank you both so much for your comments. That means a lot. Well, <laughs> I think we're being challenged in this moment because of the climate crisis to brush the bullshit aside and hone in on what matters. And this is a great <laughs> transition that many of us have to go through depending on what kind of a culture we've been living in, mired in consumerism and materialism and distractions and toxic positive psychology about being your best self and never letting the shadow sides show and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen um, in order for us to get real with ourselves and with others about this moment in time. And when you do that, it can really unleash some incredibly powerful existential feelings and thoughts. And so this is important. They need to come together. We can't just intellectualize about the crisis. We need to feel about it too, so that it lands in our hearts and our stomachs and not only our minds, which is hugely motivating for making um, changes, right? And reorienting yourself towards um, the future. So I went on that kind of journey, which was fueled from existential fears. And I also had to kind of step out of my middle-class, white, um, privileged uh, understanding of hardship and uh, connect with the rest of humanity, so to speak, and connect with history and understand how humans have been through so many crises uh, at so many stages. And it's really remarkable to see the stamina and the ability to survive and thrive in dangerous times that we have within us, that capacity. And I think that um, that gets unleashed by really touching the nerve. And so that boundless stream of energy and love, that's the stuff that keeps us going, right? And it's always available to us. You can't strip that from our consciousness. We can enact that. Even in a bunch of smoke and ash, we can enact that. So um, in that sense, I think, you know, meaning and purpose is hugely important for us to connect with in an authentic way that works for us in the climate crisis. And it's not enough. We also need to know how to cultivate joy at the same time. So they kind of go together, love, meaning, connection, purpose, uh, while not negating the difficult, scary truth of it all. David Wallace-Wells and Britt Ray, thank you for your work. Thank you for your books. And thank you for sharing your mind and hearts with us today on Climate One. Thank you so much. It was great to have this convo. Thanks for having us. On this Climate One, we've been talking about COVID and climate fatigue with authors Britt Ray and David Wallace-Wells. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your pods. As we heard from David and Britt today, talking about climate can be hard, and it's critical to address the climate crisis. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox and Tyler Reed. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.